Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talk with Dr. Anne Blankenship about pilgrimages to Japanese-American incarceration camps. Dr. Blankenship is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies at North Dakota State University and the author of several publications on the topic of Japanese-American incarceration camps. Dr. Blankenship, I'm curious about your connection to this topic. How did you come to be interested in the incarceration camps in the first place? And also, what is the origin of your interest in the pilgrimages that emerged post-World War II? I grew up in Washington State. The incarceration was always part of our local history. Um, You know, my parents had friends that were sent to the camps. It was just always part of our history. And so it certainly, I think elsewhere in the U.S., it's kind of an event that's a little bit forgotten, or at least historically was not taught very often. That wasn't the case for us. And as I started my PhD in American religious history, you know, I was looking for a topic for my dissertation like everybody is. And I was visiting my family in southern Idaho. They farmed in southern Idaho during World War II. And the camp in Idaho, Minidoka, actually allowed their incarcerates to go out and work on the farms. Um, I mean, they saved the sugar beet harvest and all sorts of other crops that, you know, the young men who were harvesting them had all gone off to war and there would have been a major food crises if the Japanese were not there to take care of that. So I, you know, was all excited. I was like, well, grandma, did you have any of these people, you know, working on your farm? She's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> your grandpa probably would have known. I'm like, well, of course he would have known, but he had already died at that point. So there wasn't anything we could do about that story, but I like to think I have some kind of personal tie to it. So I wrote my dissertation on Christianity and the incarceration I realized there are a lot of books on the incarceration itself. There was nothing on religion and the camps for the most part. A couple articles about Buddhism in the camps, a couple articles on Quakerism. The Quakers were certainly the most vocal group opposing the incarceration. And so my book ended up looking at the religious practices of Japanese Americans who were Christian or converted to Christianity in the camps. There was religious freedom. There were lots of Buddhist churches as well as Christian churches. And the response of white Christians outside of the camps. Um, Were they helping people or were they not? That sort of thing. And then um, pilgrimages for me, honestly, kind of a side interest that I've always found fascinating. And so as I was doing my research, of course, I learned about these pilgrimages and started to dig into it more and more just out of curiosity, honestly, at the beginning, and then came up with enough material that I thought I should do something with it. Can you give us some background on what led to Japanese Americans being removed from their homes in the first place? The bombing was on December 7th, 1941. That evening, 
hundreds of Japanese men, mostly business leaders, community leaders, um, Buddhist priests, anyone they felt had influence over the community or any kind of connection, financial or political or anything else religious connection to Japan, those men were immediately arrested. The U.S. already had a list compiled. The FBI was ready and set to arrest them that night. They had everyone's addresses compiled. So they were taken immediately and sent to Department of Justice camp. So these were, at that point, enemy aliens in legal terminology. And so they were um, actually received trials and, you know, they were accused of conspiracy against the U.S. government. They got trials and most of them, or many of them anyway, were released or sent to camps with their families later on. So that happened right away. People generally weren't taken from their homes until late spring 1942. And they received notices. They plastered posters up on your telephone poles and things um, announcing that this neighborhood should uh, register their family with the government. They would set up registration centers and churches and other public buildings. And people voluntarily went, nearly 100% of the Japanese American population complied with that order, registering themselves. And then at a future point, they were given about 48 hours to pack their belongings sell or rent their house or their business or their farms and leave at that point with whatever they could carry themselves to the camps. I'm aware of your specific expertise on the Tulu Lake camp. Can you talk about some of the characteristics of this camp as well as address the larger forced relocation process? People were sent initially to small kind of assembly centers in uh, at racetracks and fairgrounds and places like this, families were housed in like actual horse stalls. It was very, very poor conditions. So they were sent there while the government was building these 10 camps, 10 larger camps in the interior of the United States. Most of those, including Tule Lake, were built on land owned by the Bureau of Land Reclamation. And then there were a couple on Native American reservations as well. So Tule Lake is one of two in California. Its history is a little bit different than the rest of the 10 camps. Initially, they were all started on equal footing. Each camp held about 10,000 people to begin with. But Tule Lake became, just because of the regions uh, where they were acquiring their incarcerates from, did become slightly larger initially. And in 1943, the government made a very, the incarceration itself was a poor decision. They designed this very poorly worded, um, what became known as a loyalty questionnaire that they gave um, everyone in the camps, well, 18 and above. And two questions on that questionnaire were particularly problematic. Like one asked if citizens would be willing to forsake any kind of citizenship, foreign citizenship to the Japanese empire specifically. Another asked if they would serve in the US military. So for the first Japanese immigrants who weren't born in the US were not actually eligible for citizenship. So if they said, sure, I'll abandon that, they would be nationless people, which is problematic, obviously. And a lot of people qualified their answer to the other question saying, sure, I'll serve if you let my family go free. Right. 
And so the government, everyone who answered no, no, the no, no's as they became called were sent to Tule Lake. And then most of the people they considered loyal were taken out and sent to other camps. So Tule Lake became a maximum security segregation center as of, what was it, July 1943. And its population exploded at that point to almost 19,000. So it was incredibly crowded. There were numerous somewhat violent uprising, riots, strikes. They had much more just civil unrest in those camps, um, largely due to government actions. In response to that, the segregation and increased military forces in Chile Lake also led to almost 6,000 incarcerees to renounce their U.S. citizens. A large number also asked for repatriation back to Japan at the end of the war. The military built this very large stockade in the middle of the camp. So there was essentially a jail inside of a jail for the dissidents as they considered them. So all of this pressure ended up, you know, encouraging this pro-Japanese movement that hadn't really existed before, especially among younger Japanese men who became rather militaristic, holding military drills and calisthenics and stuff every morning. And there was a lot of pressure to join them, whether or not they were actually supported anything about Japan or Japanese politics, but would be beat up, possibly their families threatened if they did not comply. That's sort of what makes Tule Lake unique among these other centers. You just mentioned the militaristic movements that emerged in Tule Lake with regards to the young Japanese-American men. Beyond this, many Japanese-American young men also served in the U.S. military during this time, and it's difficult for me to wrap my head around this paradox. Like I said on the loyalty questionnaire, there were some men, and this happened so initially, like as of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there were Japanese-Americans, of course, too. I mean, young men like all the other young men in the U.S. went and volunteered for military service, and they were not allowed to enter the military at that point. They were not permitted to enter for essentially a full year until the point really of this loyalty questionnaire, because the government put a lot of faith in this questionnaire that was thinking that if they said they were loyal, then, well, they must be loyal. And so, great, those men can go into the military service. And then a little while later, they start drafting those men actually out of the camps, the ones that did not volunteer. It's a very difficult situation if you you and your family are incarcerated. And so they would go to basic training. And if they want, you know, afterwards, often you could go back and visit your family before you were shipped off. And they had to, yeah, go back to these camps. They were wearing military uniforms, but they have to check in with you know, the military personnel guarding the camp, and suddenly they're on the other side of it. And that paradox, as you say, was extremely difficult, but it also became a narrative that the Japanese American community after the fact could use as, look how loyal we were. Even though this was happening to us, our men still went off to fight. So certainly, especially in the early years, like in the 70s and 80s, those men were heralded as the very core representation. 
of those volunteers. There's actually a monument to those soldiers in Washington, D.C., a big statue to them specifically for making that sacrifice. This monument in D.C. is certainly one of many places of pilgrimage related to the Japanese-American incarceration. The camps themselves have also become pilgrimage sites, and I'd love to hear more about that. And maybe you can also talk a bit about how Tule Lake emerged as a place of pilgrimage to begin with. The pilgrimages started certainly as a place of reconciliation, but also as a way to organize social justice movements. And the social justice movements, of course, initially were for themselves. They had two main objectives in the very beginning. One, to obtain protective status over the site of the camp, so to get recognition as a state historic site and then eventually as a national historic monument or national historic site or national monument. That was achieved over time, and their other main objective in the beginning was for this redress movement that was growing throughout the 70s to basically demand that the government address this injustice and the pain and financial loss that the community experienced. And so that was achieved in the 1980s, especially with the Civil Rights Act of 1988, when Japanese work had been survived. Anyone who was alive still, who had been in the camps, was given a certain amount of reparation money. Once those things were achieved, for Tule Lake, they still had to reconcile with this issue of being a segregation center and resisting the military and grappling with what seemed to be a loyalty to Japan at that time. But for the other pilgrimages, particularly the other big pilgrimage is at Manzanar. It's about four hours outside of Los Angeles. First of all, it's just much larger because it's the only camp that's near a major urban center. And so it's really the only one that is accessible in a day. The rest are all, you know, involve several days of going out and making this venture. So the Manzanar pilgrimage shifted their perspective, particularly, I mean, after these initial goals were achieved, there was still certainly a focus on commemoration of the camps and shifted much more towards a celebration of the Japanese community in America. It also became, because it was the most accessible pilgrimage site, it became the unified center for people that were incarcerated in any of the 10 camps would come to Manzanar just because it was. They very consciously start celebrating all of the camps. So during the pilgrimage, um, one of the earliest parts of the ceremonies involved carrying in a banner for each of the camps. So they are very actively celebrating and inviting speakers and things from other camps. That becomes a part of the Manzanar pilgrimage. So the Manzanar pilgrimage now has about 2,000 people per year that come. So they expanded initially to the other camps. And after 9-11, they placed their focus really on social justice in kind of a larger sphere and saying that... This pilgrimage is an act of remembrance, but 
their founders, um, just to paraphrase, talk about remembrance being that it's not a passive act, that we are remembering in order to, you know, if we're not actively protesting other sorts of oppression, then we're not properly remembering this act. So it became a place where there are regularly like Native American speakers. There are since 9-11 different Muslim groups have come every year and spoken. They've actually taken part in some of the interface ceremonies as well, even though there are obviously no Muslims in the camps. And now things have shifted just in the last year or two towards looking at Latin Americans and the migrant crisis on the border because the Japanese American community has certainly, they were one of the most vocal advocates for Arab Americans in the aftermath of 9-11 because they understand. How did all of these pilgrimages begin? Were they immediate places of pilgrimage post-World War II? In the immediate aftermath of the war, the Japanese American community generally took the stance of silence and they wanted to move back into American society as quickly and smoothly as possible. There was a lot of shame associated with having endured this trial, even though they were perfectly loyal American citizens, that accusation you know, really still held a stigma for those families. And a lot of the parents didn't talk to their kids about the camps. It really wasn't until the late 1960s, 1970s, Asian American pride movements and civil rights movements that you get public dialogue for the very first time about the incarceration and why that happened. By the 1970s, there was communal reconciliation with the incarceration itself and wanting to commemorate the experiences and injustices that occurred during that time. That was all really based on the fact that these were loyal American citizens, in most cases, that were taken from their homes and placed in these camps, that this was an injustice. And it was difficult to reconcile that narrative with the fact that there were thousands of people who renounced their U.S. citizenship, right? And they did that for so many different reasons. It was not because their ultimate loyalty laid in Japan. In most cases, that wasn't actually the situation that was happening. What types of rituals or activities are involved in these pilgrimages? All of the pilgrimages actually have pretty similar core events, You know, there's some sort of opening ceremony with different speakers, which now often include Native American speakers or Muslim American speakers. There's usually some sort of cultural performance, like taiko drumming. There is the interfaith service that I mentioned, usually with at least Christian, Buddhist, and sometimes Shinto clergy who go to it. Most of the camps there is a memorial for the people who died when they were living in that camp. So it usually takes place there. And it's, I mean, in commemoration of the people who died at that camp, but also who have died since that point in time. It's an act of remembrance. There is usually tours of the campsite. Only three of the camps have national park status of some sort and have any organized site to visit. Heart Mountain has a private museum and site that you can visit. And so they'll have tours of those different sites. 
it seems that storytelling or group discussion would be a part of the pilgrimage. Is that the case? It's odd. It's almost always placed as a separate activity at Manzanar. It's part of their Manzanar at Dusk program. At Tule Lake, it happens on a subsequent day, but they have different intergenerational activities and discussions. So in the beginning, that was simply having people break apart in small groups with people of multiple generations that, you know, had people that lived in the camps, people that may be children in the camps, and later generations of people, and simply to tell stories and talk about their experience and help people understand. Because especially if you're coming from the outside and maybe weren't even raised as, you know, in the Japanese American community, attending these ceremonies is perhaps significant in a certain way, but hearing the more intimate stories on a, you know, in a small group setting might have a bigger impact. And so all of the pilgrimages do those things. Some of them, like the Tule Lake pilgrimage, also include a bus ride at the beginning and end. So the bus ride is in one way it's just practical these places are in the middle of nowhere and it provides transportation but it's also an act of recreating their detention so the buses for tule lake there are buses from northern california cities there's a bus from portland oregon there's a bus from seattle you sign up i think it costs the pilgrimage itself is maybe like 500 dollars a piece and it includes your bus ride there your housing and food while you're there for the couple days and then your bus ride back home again. The bus ride, um, they do this for the Southern Idaho pilgrimage as well. For Tule Lake, it's kind of expected that you do the bus ride and that is kind of a unified part of it. For the Idaho pilgrimage, you can register for a package just in Idaho or a package with transportation. But that Bus ride, I think, does set a very different tone for the pilgrimage. I mean, it's a place, again, where people are telling stories about their time in camp, especially for families that are going together. Maybe they made this decision to go, but haven't fully discussed what life was like, especially for that ride home once they've been confronted with a lot of that stuff and maybe, like I said before, for the first time feel comfortable talking about it because they've received acknowledgement and maybe even praise for that resistance that occurred during the war. For pilgrimage studies, it is this entrance into this, what we call a liminal space, where there it's normal social hierarchies and social functions are changed in some sort of way, that it is a different type of space simply than your regular day-to-day life. And I think the bus journeys help set that off and set this apart as sacred space. And incidentally, they do talk about the camps as sacred space. So the last two years at Tule Lake, their camp themes have involved the term hallowed ground to talk about their site. As you well know, in the academic community around pilgrimage studies, there is ongoing discourse regarding the definition of pilgrimage. 
You previously mentioned liminal space and the camps being referred to as sacred sites. What else makes these journeys to the camps a pilgrimage? Eric Cohen is a scholar of pilgrimage and his definition of pilgrimage talks about when trying to differentiate pilgrimage from tourism or some other type of experience, he talks about like pilgrimage being a move towards a spiritual or cultural center, whereas tourism is moving from your center to experience the other in some sort of way. And so I think that definition is very helpful, especially within more secular pilgrimages, because it's more motioning toward a pilgrimage being an experience that revitalizes a person. It reinforces their commitment to cultural values, to community or other family social bonds, and helps them relate to themselves and their place in society. I'm wondering if you can talk about the parallels that may exist between the current migrant crisis and the Japanese-American incarceration experiences. Well, certainly it's, I mean, detention without being accused of necessarily a crime unless that's illegally crossing the border, which is not actually the case in a lot of these you know, situations where people are asking for asylum. They have not actually broken any law. They're not being accused of any crime, but they're being detained against their will. And it involves detaining children. During World War II, there were infants with a drop of Japanese blood that, for all intensive purposes, looked white and may have been living with white foster families even. And these children, some of them didn't even know that they were part Japanese. And they were taken from their families and placed in, there was kind of a big orphanage at one of the camps that had infants and people who were clearly not a national security threat in any sort of way. They weren't even attached to Japanese families that might inculcate Japanese values to them. They were clearly not a threat in any sort of way, and certainly that has become part of the current migrant crisis and the stories you hear of children in cages and the pressures of family separation that occurred during World War II when male family leaders were sent off to Department of Justice camps while their families were sent to these other larger relocation centers. In light of these parallels, can you talk about the activism that is embedded in one or more of the pilgrimages? There was a pilgrimage to what was called at the time the Crystal City Family Internment Camp. And that was a slightly different situation. It was this family camp. There were families living in the other camps, but this was not one of those 10 camps. And this is where a lot of diplomats and their families were sent, people with some sort of higher authority and connections with Japan, frequently people that weren't even necessarily residents of the U.S., but were here temporarily. They were sent to Crystal City, along with a great number of Latin American Japanese, so Japanese that were living in Chile and Peru, were all collected and sent to this camp as well. In the pilgrimage this year, when they went to this camp, they continued their protest. The camp is located quite near the Mexican border and very close to the South Texas Family Residential Center. 
just the name even is quite similar to the Crystal City family internment camp. So they made a protest at the border and at this detention center part of their pilgrimage. They went initially to Crystal City and then moved on to this detention center, which is the largest migrant prison in the U.S. right now. They gave talks on site. They had this protest. They also had, though, this national campaign to string these paper cranes, which, you know, in Japanese culture is a symbol of fortune and luck. So they had this campaign. They wanted to have 10,000 paper cranes that were folded from all over the U.S. and you were supposed to mail them your paper cranes and then they would put them in chains and hang them up on the fences and places. They ended up getting 25,000 cranes. And so just, I mean, visually, this demonstration was incredibly powerful and made clear the direct ties. You know, it's one thing to talk about the migrant crisis when you're off in the desert in California. It's another to go to the border directly and make that part of your pilgrimage. What lessons can we take away from these pilgrimages to the Japanese-American incarceration camps? I think it certainly tells us a lot about pilgrimage more generally and the different forms that it takes. There's obviously the larger lesson of the larger social justice message about how we treat minorities in the United States and really the language we use around national security fears and prejudices and how that is all tied together. And I think the Japanese American community has done a really good job of continually trying to remind the American public through these pilgrimages and other venues to remember that this event happened and that we need to watch for signs of similar occurrences in our country. Can you speak more specifically about what those signs are? I would first think of dehumanizing language, talking about people as animals or beasts. Once you start thinking about people as something other than people, (laughs) that makes it easier. That is one of the very first steps in trying to disenfranchise a people, certainly, and then subsequently loss of legal rights registries, the fact that the government had a very detailed list of all the people they were ready to arrest right upon the time of the war. That says something. And the secondary effects of arresting people that they are related with, you know, threatening their families and other people who are similarly innocent in all of this project. I would say dehumanizing language and the loss of rights are the two main ones. For more of Dr. Blankenship's insights on the Japanese-American incarceration, please check out her book, Christianity, Social Justice, and the Japanese-American Incarceration During World War II. You've just heard Pilgrimage to Japanese-American Incarceration Camps, produced by Dr. Heather Warfield and edited by Janine Marr, copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. 
We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email, info at MeaningfulJourneys.net, or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time. 